cannabis topics in less than 10 minutes. Let's go. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Kim Rivers, CEO of TrueLeaf. Kim, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Are there additional <laughs> challenges that were specific to cannabis that you hadn't faced prior that kind of surprised you along the way? I don't think anything that surprised me necessarily. I mean, obviously, it's state by state. So, um, you know, we had to go through the regulatory right requirements of every state for transfer. And those are very different from state to state. So it was a lot of work on the um, licensing and regulatory teams, for sure. Um, a lot of coordination around the when and how. And, you know, I had to fly um, out to California to one city to get fingerprinted and interviewed, as an example. There were all kinds of little nuances. Um, you know, the process in Nevada is extremely robust and takes a very long time because of their gaming background, right, in terms of how they um, view cannabis licenses. So, I mean, certainly there were nuances that were unique to the cannabis industry. I wouldn't say anything that was surprising necessarily. So synergies, unfortunately, take some time, right? There's overlapping of positions and resources and bringing that together. So how, how long does that take? And when do you expect to see some of those synergistic results kind of adding to the bottom line and the benefits for Truly? Yeah, for sure. So I think we've been try at least we've tried to be very transparent in our journey, right, with integration. And you're right. I mean, this was a huge transaction. There were a lot of folks um, affected and impacted, and um, it does take time, right? We knew right away, um, and actually talked about this before closing, that we were likely going to be jettisoning certain assets and certain parts of the harvest portfolio, um, just because we saw the numbers and it, it didn't necessarily make sense. We wanted to get closed own them, really make sure that we understood, make sure that there wasn't some other opportunity that we may have missed, right? Um, sitting on the sidelines versus being in the driver's seat. Um, but you've seen us, right, over the last couple of quarters do just that. Um, you know, we've we've closed um, certain markets that quite frankly just weren't contributive. They were cash flow negative. They were, you know, it just it, they just didn't make sense. The the footprint wasn't large enough to be efficient. So, you know, to have a, a single site that's landlocked that can only produce X amount and you're only on one part of the supply chain, it was either, you know, we were going to have to make significant investment there to really build an entire market around that particular asset or make the decision to let it go. And, um, you know, for us, again, it depends. Is it in a region that we're trying to optimize? Is it close in proximity? Are there efficiencies that we can gain in other ways? If the answer to those are all no, and there's no path to profitability, then for us, it's a pretty easy black and white. We've got to let it go. One of the things that I'm most fascinated about truly is the hub and spoke model. Announced in 2020, that obviously had a big focus on what the future would look like, not current cannabis operations. Can you kind of expand on what were the thinking behind that strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are a, a team and a board that is constantly, again, focused on today, certainly, and making sure we're making the most of today, but also on what's, you know, what's next and where are we headed and making sure that we have an identified and communicated path, strategic path forward, um, and that we're making moves and we're executing against that strategy. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, to spend um, time developing a strategic plan, developing strategic goals, and then have it sit on the shelf, um, right, in a binder, typically, right, that never to be referenced again. And so um, we spend some pretty constant 
concentrated time with one another um, every year in January um, where we talk a lot about, you know, where we're headed and, and where we want to be positioned as an organization. And so the Hub and Spoke model came from that work alongside the board. And, you know, my board is fantastic. Um, it's a very diverse board, but I mean, just the background and the expertise that they bring to the table, they're a very involved and engaged board and just really meaningfully contribute to our direction. And we realized, right, that we needed to diversify, one, right? But in two, we also wanted to make sure that, because we had seen a number of cannabis companies get so big, so fast with really, from at least from where we sat, no, necessarily, no necessary rhyme or reason in terms of the why they were going into these markets or what their long-term vision or strategy was um, as these markets either continued to develop or not, right? And so for us, it was very important to define what does success look like? What is our goal um, with expansion? And how are we going to measure against that? Again, short-term, mid-term, long-term. Those data games are so challenging. As a marketer, I understand that. And I respect that because you look for that personalization every single time. Because if you know, let's say, for example, Drew likes high-end premium flour, but Kellen likes low-end flour, if a partner wants to come in and do a limited drop, you can test it out with the demographic. You know exactly works well, which makes you key in certain areas if you want to kind of go in there understanding the demographics, but as well as kind of partnering the other side where if someone wants to utilize truly as a channel, you know exactly where you can hit. Do you think that's an underappreciated aspect of what you've built so far at a scale standpoint? I do. I, I don't think that a lot of folks out there really understand, you know, ne- which we don't need to, right? We understand as consumers how it works, right? But we don't necessarily understand how it's how it's built and the you know requirements to sort of go into making it feel seamless or make, making it effective. And so, yeah, I, I, I do. But I think that it will become and continue to become a game changer for us as it evolves. And, um, you know, we see it as definitely a strategic and a competitive advantage. The internet has a working theory that operating in limited license states isn't a USP and that once MSOs don't operate in these market conditions, I guess federal legalization, the business model will be obsolete. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the business model, maybe, right? Um, depending. And I think that... And I'm going to give you a very like... And this is where the lawyer brain comes in. Um, <laughs> I think that it depends, right? And what I mean by that is it depends. I don't know that I see a scenario on the federal level where point of sale is completely left wide open. I think that when we sort of study right the rollback of prohibition from an alcohol perspective, there was definitely a very patterned distribution network across the U.S., with some states owning it through their governments, actually, right? And when you have the, in certain states, right, their state-issued, kind of like Canada does, right, with their state-issued, you know, alcohol distributors, other states that had very, you know, tight controls on how stores and where stores, and I mean, even in certain states, um, even today, right, where liquor can be sold versus, um, you know, beer and wine, how it can be delivered to your home, you know, whether it can be delivered to your home, some of that actually still is held over today, which is crazy. I'm thinking about how long ago that was. So I don't know that it's going to be a, hey, um, you know, it's, um, it's available anywhere and everywhere. Um, You know, but I think that it's my job as CEO and our job as as an organization to be prepared for lots of different scenarios. Let's do a quick rapid fire. Okay. Best guess, what year does adult use sales in Georgia start? Uh, I'm gonna go 2027, 2020. That's a good guess. <laughs> That's a good guess. Your go-to karaoke song. Ooh, Ice Ice Baby. 
Maryland, Pennsylvania, Georgia. How would you rank these markets 20 years from now? Oh my God. Um, it's all going to be one big market because we're going to be looking at, um, at some, some sort of federal legalization at that point. Ah, well played. Oh, your, most, your, your most consumed cannabis product? Ooh, uh, flour, um, for sure. Um, I'm a indica-leaning hybrid or an indica girl. So um, hmm. I've been really enjoying memberberry lately. All right. In your yeah. opinion, which event is more disruptive to the cannabis industry? Interstate commerce or federal legalization? They both happen at the same time. Which <laughs> event is more beneficial to truly? The, I think model? it's the same. I think it's the same. I think it's the same effect, unless we're saying that federal legalization somehow doesn't lead to interstate commerce. Well, so I guess I'm confused. Most bullish product category over the next five years. Flower is always going to be pretty important, but I think you're going to see a big boom in edibles. Favorite Blink 182 song? Oh, come on. All the small things. And then. What's my age again? I really like that one too. You can't go wrong with the classics. (laughs) You can share Trekker with three people, dead or alive. Who are they? Uh, RBG for sure. Eliza Hamilton would be a good one for me. And Sarah Blakely, Sphinx founder. Under the radar state, you think investors are overlooking that you're most bullish on? I think Georgia is going to be great. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? As a woman, just sit at the table. Prediction time. With more and more states coming online, eventually we will have legalization across the United States. When that happens, which region in the United States will be the biggest region? I mean, the Southeast. So Kim, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy True Leaf products. Where can they find them? Oh my gosh, go online to www.trueleave.com and all of our dispensaries are listed there for you. You can actually type in your location and it will tell you where your closest True Leave location is, uh, is available for you. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was fun. Thanks. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Thank you.